Is it okay to question God? What about to totally disagree with Him? To tell Him we don't like what He's doing and to ask Him to explain it to us? I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. The Old Testament prophet, prophet Habakkuk did just those things, and we'll look at God's response to him in our lesson today entitled, The Prophet Habakkuk and His Question, It's Okay to Ask God Why. Is it really okay to do that? To ask God why? We all have questions like these. Why does God allow evil? Why do evil people get away with things? Why do good people get caught up in the mess others make? In this lesson, we'll look at the prophet Habakkuk and what happened when he not only asked God why, but when he kept asking God when he didn't like how God answered him the first time. Habakkuk is a fascinating book, but before we get into answering these questions, let's look at the form of the book before we look at the content. This book, you see, is a record of a conversation with God. Job is another example of this kind of book, and the Psalms are full of this type, where the writer directly addresses God with questions or complaints. In fact, that happens so often in the Psalms that you may not have been aware of it, aware of the conversational nature of them, unless you kind of stop and think about it. So are some of the writings of Paul in the New Testament, where he directly asked God why he couldn't get rid of a physical problem that he had. You see, this give and take in conversation is very different than the scriptures that are simply God speaking through, for example, a prophet, where he says, thus saith the Lord. In these, a person asks a question, wonders about something, challenges God, God replies, and both the human words and God's words are recorded. Now, what does it mean to actually have a conversation with God? Popular culture tells us that when people mention talking to God or hearing from God, that it's a sign of sort of delusional self-deception. But it might be something else entirely. What if it is an intrinsic part of an intimate and real relationship with God. One resource that's been very helpful to me in looking at this whole idea is the book Hearing God by Dallas Willard. It's a very deep and very thought-provoking book, and I highly recommend it. It's very useful for further study on this topic. Now, there's so much in the book, but let me read you one quote from the introduction. Here's what it says. Hearing God? A daring idea, some would say, presumptuous and even dangerous. But what if we are made for it? What if the human system simply will not function properly without it? There are good reasons to think it will not. The fine texture as well as the grand movements of life show the need. Is it not, in fact, more presumptuous and dangerous to undertake human existence without hearing God? Consider that conversation with God is how we ought to live. It's not an unusual otherworldly activity, but God's intention from our creation. When in Eden, remember, it says God walked with Adam in the cool of the day, and it will be restored as John looks forward to the book of Revelation, where he says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. That will be glorious. But as Habakkuk shows us, it's available to us now. 
And I think it's something that our Lord desires, amazing as that seems. He made us for interaction with him and died so that the sin that separates us was destroyed. And he gives us eternal life so that we will never be separated from him when we confess our sins and accept his gift of salvation. He did so much for us and he wants us to talk to him. But what if we don't have a conversational relationship with God? Now I argue that having this conversational um, interaction, reaction, relationship with God isn't just a spiritual bonus in life, but that it's essential because humans really can't bear to be alone. When God created man, he says it's not good that that man should be alone. And, And we just don't like that. We will always be talking to someone. And in return, we will always listen to someone. We always have what are called referent others. They are the voices we listen to. They are what guide our choices and actions when we aren't even conscious of it. A key question we need to ask ourselves then is, who are they? Who are our referent others? Where do the voices that you listen to come from? With whom do you have internal conversations, media, a sports team, expectations of a social group. And I was also thinking uh, past family things. Do you hear a parent or uh, something from your childhood or just different voices that are in our heads? What does your heart, in contrast, and I would hope, immediately turn to God and his word? Where do we turn for answers, not only to for the daily actions of life, but to the big questions of personal or national tragedy? Now let's look at Habakkuk to see what he did in a very difficult time. Where did he turn for answers to make sense of his world? Now first, let's take a brief historical review of what was going on when Habakkuk asked his questions of God. Now, previous to this time, the prophets had preached and challenged Israel and Judah, remember the kingdom had split, to repentance. They reminded them that they agreed to a covenant with God after they came out of Egypt, and their preaching was to remind them that they needed to obey it and of the consequences that would follow. Now, sadly, in 722 B.C., repentance is no longer possible nationally for the northern kingdom of Israel as it falls and is exiled to Assyria. Then in 612 B.C., Nineveh itself, the conquering nation, is conquered by Babylon, as prophesied and recorded in the book of Nahum. Now, in 609, the godly king Josiah dies. Now, we date and keep in mind that the exact dates of the prophets are always just a little bit hard to come up with, but we date the prophet Habakkuk from 607 to 588 BC. Now, to put that in context, this is after Israel fell, after it was conquered. Judah's still hanging in there. That's where Habakkuk lives, but Nineveh has fallen and Babylon is rising in power. Then in 605 BC, possibly two years after Habakkuk starts writing, the first invasion of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar takes place, and Daniel is one of the people that is taken captive into the land. 
Now, Habakkuk's ministry, as far as we can tell, ends sometime before the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And we really do not have any record of what happened to him. But his writing seems to stop about that time. Now, this was a time of uncertainty and turmoil. But let's go through the book now, look at what he has to say, and make some comments as we go along. Here's how the book begins in Habakkuk 1. How long, Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. There's a lot we can identify with in his prayer. The world really hasn't changed that much. The players might have changed a little bit, but uh, the situation isn't that much different. There's evil on the world stage, evil in the nation after the death of a good king. People hadn't learned from previous prophets or from the judgment of Israel, and we've, we've seen all of history where bad things happen to bad nations and people, and people still don't pay attention. They keep living selfish lives. They're not concerned about the poor. They're only concerned about themselves, about making money, getting power, all of that kind of thing, living how they want to live. But Habakkuk knows these things are wrong, and he wants God to take action, and he wants to know why God isn't taking action. God never rebukes him for his questions. Asking why is okay, and this begins a conversation between them. God, though, when he does answer, doesn't answer in the way that Habakkuk imagined that he would and the way he wanted him to. Here's what God says. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told, I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Now, a little bit more about Babylon, the power that God was using to do his will. They defeated the Assyrian nation. That was long thought absolutely impossible. Assyria's capital city, Nineveh, was founded, listen, in 6000 BC. It's one of the oldest largest and most powerful cities in the ancient world. It had a wall system consisting of a stone retaining wall that was about 20 feet high. And it was then over that, there was a mud brick wall that was about 33 feet high and 49 feet thick. Then it had a stone retaining wall that had stone towers projecting about every 54 feet on that. It was considered absolutely impenetrable. As a nation, they were evil, they were pagan, they were incredibly cruel. As we've talked about in other lessons, and I've showed you some of the images of the carvings that they left of them impaling people and cutting off heads and hands and and just literally chopping people up alive and piles of skulls, and they were known for their horrible, horrible brutality. 
They repented briefly under the preaching of Jonah, but then they reverted to their old ways and conquered and resettled the northern kingdom of Israel. Their destruction was prophesied by Nahum the prophet, and that short book talks about uh, God's judgment on them, and it ends up by saying, who hasn't felt your terrible cruelty? But God finally said, enough and they were destroyed. They were destroyed, in fact, so thoroughly by the Babylonians who completely broke everything down, covered up the city. It was not rediscovered until the mid-1800s. At the same time, Babylon also conquered Egypt. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar was the general at that time. He becomes the king in the book of Daniel, and we read about him at that time. There was a different king over Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, though, was the conquering general who later becomes king. And now the world stage belongs to Babylon. God tells Habakkuk that all this is going to happen and that he, God, has raised up Babylon to do this. Now the response, this does not satisfy Habakkuk at all. He is not happy about it. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment? You, my rock, have ordained them to punish? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Is it to keep on emptying its net, destroying nations without mercy? After asking this question, why, why, why? I don't understand. Habakkuk says, okay, I'm going to wait for you to answer. And here's what he says. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Now, here's what we've learned so far. It's totally okay to question God. Totally okay to discuss with God what concerns you. Nabakak just laid it all out there. God, you know, they're evil. They're more evil than we are. Well, that was God's judgment, but still, they were objectively evil. And God, the thing that we learn about this, too, is God often does not do what we expect. We see a limited view of what's going on. And we need to clarify that the idea that evil is never promised, that we will never have hard times, that bad things won't happen, we're never, ever, ever promised that. Sometimes God allows it. We often just want the pain or the problem or what we see as an issue to stop now. But God is often working on something much bigger. Sometimes we get a glimpse of it. Oftentimes we do not. That is the time to have a conversation with God. Pour out your heart, question, and pray. But at the same time, respectfully wait quietly for an answer, as Habakkuk did. Now notice, though, again, it wasn't an empty waiting time. It was a time of waiting for God to speak. And we're going to talk more about I've got some practical suggestions for you on that in, in just a little bit. Now God then, though, answers Habakkuk with a message for all time. Then the Lord replied in Habakkuk 2, Write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and not delay. 
See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faith. Now, what does it mean to live by faith? This is just a little bit on it. There's so many things we could say, but the classic verse for this, and I really think after looking at, at many versions, that the King James probably says it the best. In Hebrews 11:1, 1, where it says, Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When you look at what the Old Testament characters, that the chapters continue to talk about what they did, let, let's look at them for a minute. Noah it talks about him building an ark before he, remember it never rained before he built the ark abraham leaving a thriving city to live in a tent moses giving up the prestige of a prince of egypt to live as a child of slaves all these actions were taken in response to god they were all in situations where they were the only ones that listened to god and what they were asked to do made little sense to the contemporaries of their world. And I would argue it made little sense to Noah, Abraham, or Moses. They, I'm sure they didn't know why. God may not have told them why, but they did it anyway. The only reason they did what they did is that is what God asked them to do. And for us to live by faith means the same thing. To do what God asks us to do. And fortunately, we have his word, which spells out a lot more than most of them had. But regardless of anything else, regardless of what's going on in our world, uh, we need to do what God tells us to do. Now, you can read uh, Hebrews 11 for a lot more on this. But keep in mind that living by faith means doing what God, basically doing what God asks us to do, even if it doesn't make any sense at all in this current time. Now, God then goes on and catalogs, his, catalogs the sins of the Babylonians. He knows them far better than Habakkuk can imagine. But this is the world Habakkuk was living in. And in some ways, I think God's saying, look, I understand. I see it. And he talks about the stealing, the extortion, the plundering, the unjust game, the bloodshed, the excess drinking, the sexual sins, the idolatry, all these things going on. And though the primary emphasis is on, yes, Babylon's guilty of all this, God also implicates that the sins of Judah are similar, and they, too, will suffer judgment for them. So the thing for us to remember is we need to be conscious of our sins and our people before we point fingers at others. You know, what are we guilty of? If we really work on dealing with our own sin, we don't have as much time or mental energy to deal with the sins of others. But because God is patient, hoping for repentance from the worst of sinners does not mean that he doesn't notice and that he will not take action because he will. Just because God is not acting now does not mean he does not care or is not concerned. Babylon did conquer Assyria and took Judah captive, but its empire as a whole lasted only 80 years. And then it was gone. And the people taken captive were returned to their homeland. But during that time, now this is something that's really interesting. Um, I realized this after doing some overall study and thinking about it. A most interesting event took place. As the ruler of the entire known world, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, 
had incredible incredible power. Now, remember, I mean, he had a lot of press, so to speak. He had conquered Assyria. Nobody had done that in 6,000 years. I mean, that was a really big deal. And he ruled over the entire known world. There was a lot of communication, a lot of, uh, you know, people knew what was going on, all that kind of stuff. Now, one a thing that is seldom noticed in the book of Daniel, because so many other great stories are going on in the book, is he actually writes what's called, many have called, the first gospel tract. And here's, here's what it says in Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's writing this, so he's actually one of the authors of scripture, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. In other words, he's writing this thing in his position of power that God gave him to the entire known world, at it, it, Middle Eastern world at that time. And he says, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Then he tells of this dream that he had. Now, prior to this, he'd seen God act in great ways through Daniel, uh, predicting, uh, uh, interpreting a dream that he had, and then the whole situation, the fiery furnace, where he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who wouldn't bow down to him, into the fiery furnace, and instead of being burned up, and the three of them being there, he sees a fourth in the fiery furnace, who it said, he says, looks like a son of the Most High God, and he has them come out, and he, you know, praises God at that time, but then he goes back to his evil ways. But finally, um, he has this dream, and it was a dream of a great tree being struck down and then coming back to life. And Daniel said, you know, you, king, are the one that this is going to happen to. And um, Nebuchadnezzar apparently totally loses his mind for a number of years. He's thrown out from the palace, lives like an animal. His sanity is restored to him when he realizes that God is God. And it's, he goes on to say in his uh, gospel track, really, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I thought it was rather interesting that God created Israel to be his witness. They failed. They're taken into captivity. Um, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, and instead, God uses this pagan king to tell the nations about him. Who would have imagined that? We have no idea the stories God is writing in other lives, in other places. Even though we see great evil going on, we see people doing things we, we can't imagine why God allows that to happen. But our call is just to be faithful where we are, doing what we are called to do. Now, Habakkuk's final response is a public song of praise where he says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. I repeat them in our day, in our repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. 
in wrath. Remember mercy. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come up on the nation invading us. And though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights. He won't get out of the troubles, but no matter what the troubles, he can praise God in the midst of them. We may not be able to rejoice in our circumstances, but we can always rejoice in our God. Now, his prayer takes us back to this whole idea of a conversation with God. God is always working on a bigger picture than we're aware of, and that includes sometimes allowing bad things to happen or to go on for longer than we think they should. In the end, Habakkuk acknowledges that though he can't understand their circumstances, he can trust and rest in God. And so, we're challenged with the question, how can we develop the habit of lifelong conversation with God, where we can feel free to ask questions, the patience to listen for replies, and the sense to know when we get them? As Habakkuk did, Begin by talking to God. It's okay for you to talk first. God welcomes the prayers, the talk, the conversation of his children. Don't worry about anything, Philippians 4, 6 tells us. Pray about everything. Tell God your needs and don't forget to thank him for his answers. I would ask you, what does everything include in this verse? Well, obviously, everything includes everything. Pour out your heart to God as a continual part of the conversation of your heart and mind over everything, every day. Well, then some people might say, well, what about prayer lists? What about liturgical prayers? Now, times of formal prayer are, are just great. Um, I particularly love the Book of Common Prayer. It's a delight to read and pray through. It's a, a prayer book of the Church of England. Uh, Thomas Cramner wrote it. it. It's, you know, beautiful Shakespearean language. And every now and then, I, I really like that. But uh, prayer lists are great. Um, all of these things are good. But the important thing is, whether you're formal, informal, all of the above, is that you have a continuous conversation with God over all of life. You, th you see, any meaningful relationship, we would think would be very strange if the only time people, the people in it talked was when they had business agendas, sitting down with your husband or wife saying, well, dear, uh, this is the agenda for the week. Now we need to do this, 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 and this. Um, yeah, that's fine, and you probably need to do that sometimes, but it's often the little things, the unguarded sharing that's most valuable. We ought not to think less of our God. He wants to be invited to all our lives also. And even though people around us are often too busy, they don't want to hear everything we have to say, we will never hear that from our God. He can hear our long-involved stories, our complaints, our uh, dreams, our desires, our whatever. He loves to listen to his children. Now then, after you pray, though, listen to what God has to say. Now, how to do that? It's not a vague spiritual experience. Number one, God speaks through his word. And our hearing him based on God's word comes from having God's word in our hearts. And that's built on reading 
studying, memorizing, meditating on it. Now, there's a lot of different resources that you can use to do that more deeply. On my YouTube channel, uh, www.youtube.com slash Bible805, there's videos on the various tools. Two I highly recommend and that I use all the time myself are the Blue Letter Bible and the Bible Gateway. Um, if you go to the YouTube channel, just scroll down to the tools section to help you understand the Bible better and, and check those out. They're both very simple to use and will help you a lot. Now, once you've spent time, um, and it'll just grow as you grow in the Lord, but of knowledge and familiarity with God's Word, there are two ways then that you can access what He has to say through it. One, you can literally just sort of listen for an impression from God. A thought will come to mind. If your mind is saturated with God's word, he can use it to call things up in your mind. You can pray, you can wait, you can journal. And continue to pray. Um, if you feel that the Lord's speaking to you, sometimes what I'll do a lot of times is when I can't figure out what to do on something, just before I go to sleep, I pray that God will give me his will on that. I'll pray for specific guidance, and oftentimes then I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and I have a, a impression on what, what I need to do. Uh, take time then to journal the impressions that you get if you're not sure about them. Some of them are real obvious. Um, I do that a lot when I'm writing, and uh, God will give me, like, I, I don't know how to write something or how to start something or whatever. And I'll say, Lord, just, you know, help me on this. Or I, I do it a lot for the cl for these classes. I say, Lord, what is it that you want me to emphasize? And, and it was literally in a situation like that where I got the very strong impression that God wanted me to talk about how we have a conversational relationship with him. Um, and But in most instances, you get an impression then, and actually I, I do do this, I'll write it down, I'll say it seems like the Lord wants me to do this and so. You want to go ahead and journal on it and be very, this lets you get it, make it kind of objective, you get it out there and always know, super important, more important than anything, God will never lead you in any way that is contrary to his word. You will never get ever, ever, ever some sort of new revelation that's wrong. Always it will agree with his word. And then this is why I recommend you write them down because then you can go to his word and you can check it out and see if that's what it really says. On major decisions, it's also good to check them out with a trusted friend. Well, you know, say something like, you know, after praying and reading and all this, I feel like God might be leading me in this direction. And a friend, if they're a true friend, might either say, you know, that goes along with God's word, go for it. Or, you know, that is not what, um, what God wants you to do. Um, one thing on that, when someone says, well, you know, I don't go to church anymore because I feel like I can just get all of my own spiritual whatever from the Bible and all that. And we can say with confidence, no, God says don't give up meeting together. Flat out says that. No, it's not a debatable passage. He just says that. So sometimes we might want to go in a certain direction and God just says, nope, that isn't what you're supposed to do. Two, you can actively look for answers and ask for insight and in how to apply them. For example, looking up verses on a specific topic, such as show me verses, you just Google this, um, look it up on your phone, whatever, show me verses about how to deal with difficult people. I did that, 99 verses about difficult people came up. Here are some of them. 
A soft answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. In Romans, if possible, as far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is a key verse that I use to guide my life. Yes, there's lots of times I could say something or do something, but I've been trying so hard to live by this verse. This this verse. It's worse when I don't live by this verse. Um, um, as far as depends on me, I want to live a peaceful life. Um, Proverbs twelve sixteen. the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Oh my goodness, how easy it is to come back with a smart reply. Um, and then Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they'll soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And uh, Matthew 7, of course, where it says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And Galatians, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Once you have a selection of verses or perhaps articles on that topic, here's some additional advice from Dallas Willard on what to do. Meditate constantly on God's principles for life as set forth in the scriptures, always striving to penetrate more deeply into their meaning and into their application for our lives. Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald S. Whitney is an excellent book that has some very valuable tips on how to do this. Journal some more and think through how to apply the verses to your specific application. Ask the Lord for additional insight and how it applies to you and the people you interact with. Now we might say to ourselves, will I ever get it wrong? Will I ever just be hearing myself in this process? Yeah. You will. (laughs) You'll get it wrong sometimes. You won't hear correctly. We can sometimes go through the motions and do whatever we want to do regardless. Or sometimes, with the best of intentions, we're simply too immature in our faith in maybe just that area, or too emotional, or too blind to do what God wants. Always ask, when you're seeking His will, that He protect, that He intervene, that He correct you. Be open and willing to go in a direction you hadn't even thought of. If we realize later that we messed up when we were really sure of something, confess that sin, accept forgiveness, and press ahead. Habakkuk at first thought God was totally wrong in what he was doing. And later, he realized that God wasn't going to get him out of the situation. He was going to get him through the situation. And I've found that often how it goes. We don't want to hear that. We want out of it. But God wants to take us through it. Sometimes difficult situations will not get better in this life. And that's God's permissive will. We need to trust him in it and follow along as best we can. What if God doesn't answer at all? That can happen. There can be dark nights of the soul. God did not answer his son when he cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When that happens, we need to follow the example of what Jesus did next when he followed that cry with these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
and resurrection followed, as it will one day for us. A few closing thoughts. Habakkuk obviously had an intimate, conversational relationship with God, and we see it, part of it, in this book, where he moved from confusion and challenge to an unwavering confidence that no matter what happened, God would get him through it. Apparently so did Dallas Willard. Not only are his books a blessing, but apparently his life was also a lesson in what it meant to walk closely with, conversationally with God. As his friend John Ortberg said, Dallas had such a constant and abiding friendship with God that when he died, he probably didn't notice. May we all learn to live in that way as we daily live in conversation with our God. That's all for now. Please check out the notes, the, uh, the tools that will help you study the Bible better, all the other information that's available for you at www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.